So, like all of you, I was born with my perfection intact. And yet, at the same time, I can't remember when my innocence was disrupted and damaged. I just know at some point in my life, young, I started making a mess of things. Started saying and doing things that I would later come to regret. And yet my problem was I just kept doing them over and over again and I didn't stop. And it continued into my teenage years, my 20s, my 30s. It's still going on in my 40s. And I, I wish I could tell you that I remember what perfection looked like and felt like in my life. I have no recollection of it. Uh, the Bible lays this out very clearly, levels the playing field for all of us when it says everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And that's why I'm convinced that love, specifically God's love, changes everything for everyone, everywhere. Uh, years ago, uh, I was invited to do a wedding on a golf course in Arizona. And I flew out there, and it was a hot wedding on a, on a hot day. And at the end of it, uh, I was told I was staying in this little cabin, so I go to the cabin to retreat, and they had an outdoor bathing facility. Never seen anything like this, never been a part of anything like this, but I was hot and sweaty, so I thought, I'm going to clean up before I go to sleep, and I shower, and then when I go to get back in my room, uh, it was locked. And all I had was this little towel, it was about the size of a miniskirt, to be candid with you, and so I wrapped it around myself, and I'm just standing there trying to figure out what am I going to do next. And I know it's probably tough for you to see from where you're sitting, but I'm no Abercrombie and Fitch model, okay? When I, when I take my shirt off in public, people apologize to my kids. Like, we're sorry. We're so sorry. And so I'm standing there trying to figure out what to do, and I climb over this fence, and I have to run across like 400 yards of golf fairway. And I walk in the main lodge, and I can hear the snickering, and I can see in my periphery people are kind of pointing and laughing at me. And I get my key, and I'm you know, having the walk of shame out the front door. And as I'm walking out, an older couple's coming in. And my parents uh, had always taught me, you hold the door for older people. And so I'm standing there holding this door, and the older woman gives me this look of just pure panic and fear. And her husband's belly laughing. I can't even capture how much he was laughing. And I get nervous. Like, I, I just start sweating. I'm not good with moments like that. So I just said, I'm a preacher from Kentucky. That's... <laughs> That's what came out of my mouth. So just adding to stereotypes, that's one of my core values. Um, we, we don't know if this woman was completely naked. Uh, we don't know if she had a towel wrapped around her or if someone handed her a bed sheet. But there is one sentence in this story that tells me pretty much everything I need to know about her situation. John said they, the religious leaders, made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. So their intent is clear. They want to dish out a dose of humiliation and condemnation. But Jesus is going to dish out a dose of grace and truth. And we see that, friends, in his statements to her. First statement, I don't condemn you picture of grace. Second statement, go and sin no more. That is a picture of truth. I think in this one story, we have a very practical definition of love. 
If I could say it this way, I'll say it. Grace plus truth equals love. And if you'll let me today, I want to talk about our responsibility as leaders in the church to manage the tension between grace and truth in a culture that is completely saturated with sexual sin. You understand this dynamic that if you're holding a rubber band, a rubber band finds its purpose and its power in tension. If you don't pull on one end or the other, it's a completely useless object. And I'm convinced the same is true of love. It finds its purpose and its power in the tense moments of life. So if all we're preaching in our churches is grace, we're not helping anyone. If all we're preaching in our churches is truth, we're not helping anyone. Example of this, driving in today from my house in Nicholasville to Wilmore, if my car broke down and I popped the hood and I walk up to it with a flashlight and a wrench, the flashlight's going to reveal the problem, but not fix it. The wrench is going to fix the problem, but not reveal the problem. When it comes to the problem of sin, I need a good balance of truth to reveal the problem and grace to fix the problem. And what I'm seeing is in churches, if we preach only grace, we're pulling people towards universalism. If all we're preaching is truth, we're pulling people towards legalism. As leaders, we need to manage the tension between grace and truth. And it's not the only tension we're called to manage. We manage the tension between Jesus being fully God and at the same time, fully man. We manage the tension between the Bible being authored by men, but inspired by God. We manage the tension between faith and works, and on and on the list goes. But I think, and I could be wrong, that the greatest tension we're called to manage in today's culture is the tension between grace and truth. I have a good friend named Mike. And when he was a little boy, eight years of old, came down, eight years of age, came down the center aisle to accept Christ. Confessed his sin, repented, was baptized. And Mike grew up in Southern California, youngest of three kids, two older sisters, stay-at-home mom. His dad owned a sporting goods store. And Mike's dad, for some reason, had a definition of masculinity that was equated with sports, with athleticism. So when Mike didn't paint out to be a good athlete, his dad started verbally berating him. He would call Mike Michelle, or he would say, you're my third daughter. And he would tell his wife, this is my way of, of thickening his skin, of toughening him up, making him a man. What it did to Mike instead was created this shattered heart. And Mike, for some kid who was looking for attention and affirmation, uh, started hanging out with older men. And one of the employees, sadly, at his dad's business, started sexually abusing Mike between the ages of 11 and 14, and it continued into his teenage years. But to Mike, it didn't feel like abuse. Uh, Solomon said it this way, He who is full loathes honey, but to the hungry, even what is bitter tastes sweet. When Mike was 16, he stepped foot in his first gay bar. And he said, man, I've arrived. These are my people. They laugh when I laugh. They cry when I cry. This is my new family. Mike left home at 16, started moving from one big city to the next, looking for a long-term monogamous relationship. Instead, he ran out of money and started prostituting himself out to other men. He also started marching in gay pride parades. And along the route, he would see supposed Christians holding signs that said, God hates fags. Turn or burn. And even Mike knew from his upbringing in church, what Romans chapter 2 teaches. It's the kindness of God that leads people to repent. 
Mike said, and I quote, I was just looking for someone whose actions would speak louder than their words. From an apartment in Dallas, Texas, after another one-night stand, Mike picked up the phone and called his sister. He said, I'm tired, my life is broken, and I want to come home. To his sister's credit, she jumped on the next plane and flew to Dallas and flew him back to Southern California and said, you can live with me and my husband and my kids. 1999, Mike started seeing a counselor named Jeff. Jeff wisely said, Mike, you need to get back into church. You need to be in the body of Christ. So Mike nervously walked through the doors of a church for the first time in 12 years. Sat on the back row. He said his knees were knocking, his hands were shaking. He was so nervous that someone was going to find out about what he had been doing. And he looked to his right, and there was a woman seated next to him who seemed just as jittery and nervous as him. During the meet and greet, he shook her hand and said, my name's Mike. She said, my name's Angie. And Mike said, it just came over me. And later knew it was the Holy Spirit. He said, can I take you to lunch today after church? So they went to lunch, and Mike learned that Angie had had a bunch of abortions while she was in college, and she too was seeking healing. So they set on their friendship a journey that would save both of them. Strangely, over the next several months, Mike became attracted to Angie. Asked her out on one date, and one date led to two dates, and eventually it led to a wedding date in the spring of 2000. 2001, Mike learned about a youth ministry position at a church in Tennessee. And he'd always wanted to work with high school students. He thought, if I can help them avoid some of the problems I've made, some of the mistakes I've made, I want to do that. But he thought, who would hire a former male prostitute? His wife encouraged him to apply, so he applied. And to his surprise, the leaders of the church called him and said, we're willing to entertain this idea, but you're going to have to share your testimony from our stage. So Mike stood up in front of a few thousand people, Knees were knocking again, his hands were shaking, and he started into his story. Halfway through it, a man in the middle of the auditorium stood up, bright red hair, bright red neck, if you know what I mean, and yelled, I don't think what this church is doing to you is right at all. He said, as a matter of fact, if all of us had to air our dirty laundry, none of us would be fit for service in the kingdom. I think you're the perfect guy for the job. I think we should hire you today. And to Mike's surprise, everyone stood up and started clapping for him. And he's jokingly told me before, he said, if I were ever to write an autobiography, it would be entitled, From Prostitute to Pastor, How a Redneck Saved My Life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mike and his wife, Angie, are still in ministry in the state of Colorado today, and they have two sons, two little boys who are going to grow up knowing a thing or two about grace and truth. And if Mike was here today, I'm convinced he would tell you when it comes to people who have been burned and blistered by sexual sin, lead with grace and land with truth. If there's someone who's taught me how to do that exceptionally well over the years through his writing, it's Eugene Peterson, who we lost yesterday. And he tells a story growing up about a bully that picked on him when he was younger and finally working up the courage and muster to, to challenge him to fight back. I want to read just what he said. Peterson writes, I was with my neighborhood friends on this day, seven or eight of them, when Garrison caught up with us and started in on me, jabbing and taunting, working himself up to the main event. He had an audience, and that helped. He always did better with an audience. That's when it happened. Totally uncalculated, totally out of character. Something snapped within me. For just a moment, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness, and I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise and his, I realized I was stronger than he was. I wrestled him near the ground, sat on his chest, pinned his arms to the ground with my knees. I couldn't believe it. He was helpless under me, at my mercy, 
too good to be true. I hit him, and it felt good. By this time, all the other children were cheering, egging me on, so I hit him again. And then my Christian training reasserted itself. And I said, Garrison, say it. Say, I believe that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. <laughs> he wouldn't say it. So I hit him again. I said, say it, Garrison. Say, I believe that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And he said it. He said it. Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. <laughs> I don't think Jesus had a one-two punch in mind. When he led with grace and when he landed with truth. It's interesting, isn't it? That Jesus said to the woman, I don't condemn you. What's he saying to her? What's his message? His message to her is there's more grace in God than sin in people. And you know what? Whether it was David and Bathsheba, Hosea and Gomer, Jesus and the Samaritan woman, our God has never been afraid of sexual sin. Romans chapter 5 says where sin increased, grace increased all the more. 2003, I preached a sermon at Southland on the subject of homosexuality and word got out and our attendance doubled that weekend. People were curious to see what I had to say about it, and after the sermon, I was in the lobby shaking hands, and four young men approached me aggressively. They introduced themselves and identified themselves as being gay, and they said, we came today to heckle you, and one of them opened up his coat, and he had this big container filled with eggs. They were going to throw eggs at me in the middle of my sermon. I said, hey, thank you, number one, for not heckling me or egging me. Can I take you to lunch? And they said, sure, and so we went to lunch. I said, can I meet you again on Tuesday? I want to get to know you. I want to learn from you. And so we went to lunch that Tuesday and every Tuesday for two years. And they would read anything I asked them to read, and I would read anything they asked me to read, and we would have discussions over it. One of the most interesting conversations we ever had was centered around the meals that Jesus shared with people. Jesus was always going to a dinner or leaving one. It's one of the reasons I love him. But I said, why don't you read these stories and tell me just one lesson you learned from them. One of, one of these men on a note card wrote this. After reading about the Syrophoenician woman, people sitting under the table have a seat at the table. That's profound. And I thought, he gets it. He's starting to understand the heart of my Savior. So I went home and I told my wife, I showed her the note card, and she started this goofy little tradition in our house as a result you come to our house and eat dinner with us, we're going to hand you a black Sharpie. And after the meal, we ask you to sign the bottom of our table. We just want you to begin to take ownership of our house because it's not technically just ours. And those four gay men have shared several meals at our table. And they've signed the bottom of it as well. But far more important than them signing my table is the fact that God has now written two of their names in the Lamb's Book of Life. Two of them have surrendered. Two of them have been baptized. Two of them are now living celibate lives. Two down, two to go. Two down, two to go. When I was 12, <laughs> with the help of some friends and some fireworks, I burned my neighbor's carport down. And the police showed up. And my two older brothers said, you're going to jail and you're going to jail for a long time. And that terrified me. So I took off running. And I hid because guilt and shame. Same things that make me want to run and hide today. Eventually, I had to come out of hiding, and I came home, and my dad was waiting for me, sitting at the end of the driveway. And I thought, this is the day I'm going to meet Jesus. I'm going to heaven today. My dad's <laughs> going to kill me. And uh, to my surprise, he was really calm, and he said, we talked to the police, and all of you boys, each of you owes $40 to the neighbor for the damage you did. 
I was mowing yards, $6 a yard at the time, so I did the math. I thought, seven yards, I can handle that. So the very first yard, I'm pushing my old Briggs and Stratton lawnmower down the road, and my dad follows me. Never done that before. Carrying his lawn chair. And he set it up in the driveway, and he said, John, I want you to sit in the lawn chair. So I sat down in the lawn chair, and he goes over to my mower and pulls the string. And I was like, no, 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 I, Dad, I got this. And he goes, no, I want you to sit down. So I sat down, and I had to watch him mow the whole yard. Trimmed around the trees, even swept off the sidewalk. And he set up that lawn chair in seven driveways that week. Made me watch him mow all seven yards. And at the end of it, he put in my hand the $42 he had earned. And very calmly again, he said, I want you to go pay the neighbors the $40 you owe them. And then this big smile came over his face. He said, that $2 that's left, take it. Spend it at the gas station. Go skating with your friends, swimming, arcade, whatever you want. Just enjoy it. I had a real hard time accepting that. Everything inside of me was wanting to fight that and say, no, 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 no. But he just closed my fingers around that water cap paid my neighbors, I went home, and I was sitting on the edge of my bed, and he knew, he knew I was struggling. And I'll never forget it, he came and sat down beside me and put big, warm hands around me, and I started to cry. And he said, John, you understand, we have a debt with God that we're not capable of paying. And Jesus took care of it. And all he wants is for you to enjoy your life. And at a young age, I had a framework not a complete understanding, but a framework for what grace is really all about. Friends, there is more grace in God than there is sin in people. And our culture needs to hear that. Lead with grace, but can I challenge you to also land with truth. Jesus said to that woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. The message he's getting across to her was sex defines intimacy, not identity. When he locked eyes with her, he wasn't seeing a prostitute. He wasn't seeing an adulterer. He was seeing his dad's daughter. It was always about the identity of the people he was talking to. And the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law were always trying to trip him up. Matthew chapter 19, they asked him a question about marriage. And they're trying to pin him down, and Jesus answered it brilliantly. He said, haven't you read? I love that line. <laughs> That's all they did. That at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no, no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. You understand this. You're studying this. He's affirming the Old Testament teaching on human sexuality. And it's not confusing. It's crystal clear. One man, one woman. They leave their mom and dad, and they join forces. They become one flesh. That's sexual terminology, and they start a family of their own. Friends, anything outside of this box, from polygamy to pornography, from college kids hooking up in dorm rooms to high school kids sending naked pictures of themselves via Snapchat, to consenting adults to homosexuality, anything outside of that box sexually is sinful, which means what? It's not good for me individually or for us collectively because it lacks God's presence and power and promise. And our culture is selling a lie via Satan that says the people outside this box, they're the ones sexually liberated. They're the ones having all the fun. All the people in that box are sexually oppressed. They're missing out. And I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's true at all. It's not been true in my experience. 
Ann Landers wrote a column in newspapers for decades. And she would give relationship advice. But every so often, she would just print a letter that captures what I think God wants us to understand about marriage. Here's one of them. Dear Ann, last weekend we celebrated my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. This morning they left on a long-awaited trip to Hawaii. They were as excited as if it were their honeymoon. You see, when my parents were first married, they had only enough money for a three-day trip, just 50 miles from home. And they made a pact that each time they were intimate with each other, they would put a dollar in a special metal box, and they would save it for a honeymoon in Hawaii for their 50th anniversary. My dad was a policeman. My mom was a school teacher. Raising five children was a challenge. Sometimes money was short. But no matter what emergency came up, dad would not let mom take any money out of the Hawaii account. My parents were always very much in love. I can remember dad coming home and just telling mom, I have a dollar in my pocket. <laughs> and she would smile at him and say, I, just, I know how, just how to spend it. And when each of us children married, mom and dad gave each of us a small metal box, and they told us their secret, which we all found to be inspiring. Mom and dad never told us how much money they managed to save in their box, but it must have been considerable, because they had enough for airfare to Hawaii, plus hotel accommodations for 10 days and plenty of spending money. And before they boarded the plane, dad winked at all of us and said, tonight, we're starting a new account for Cancun. <laughs> It's interesting to me, stories like that, and you compare and contrast what we're hearing today in the messages. CEO of MTV, Bob Pittman, said recently, we don't just shoot for 14-year-olds. We own them. And you know what makes that possible? Technology. Smartphones. Op-ed in the New York Times, one writer described the threat to marriage with pornography saying this, used within reasonable limits, of course, a smartphone can offer new graces. But we're not using them with reasonable limits. They are the masters, we are not. They are built to addict us, madness, distract us, arouse us, and deceive us. We primp and perform for them as for a lover. We surrender our privacy to their demands. We wait expectantly for every like on social media. The smartphone is in the saddle, and it rides mankind. Friends, where it's, where it's leading an entire generation is towards sexual addiction. And it has three stops along the way. The first is minimization. This is where the culture begins to minimize God's standard and says, it's not that big of a deal. Did God really say that? And it leads to normalization where we begin to say, oh, it's actually healthy to look at pornography. It spices up your marriage relationship. And then we lead to celebration. And celebration is where we begin to lionize people who are rebelling willfully against God. We give them ESPYs and Lifetime Achievement Awards on the Grammys and Oscars, and we say they're heroes for what they're doing and what they're representing. We're not alone on this slippery slope. Other countries are going down the same path. Australia right now has seven-year trial marriages. If after seven years you don't like the person you're married to, you can get rid of them without any ramifications legally or financially. London, they've taken Bibles out of nightstands and hotels and replaced them with Fifty Shades of Grey. Amsterdam, there's been a huge movement for the past decade to normalize pedophilia as a healthy sexual behavior. I wasn't too surprised by that because about every five years we try to catch up with Europe. And this summer I got a memo from a political advocacy group and the author of it said this, pedophilia is as intrinsic as the next person's heterosexuality. And then he goes on to promote a blog called Virtuous Pedophile. 
Never thought I'd hear those two words together, virtuous pedophile. And in that blog, I clicked on it and kept reading. It goes on to quote what's called the Tenth Rule of Radicals. Friends, they not only have an agenda, they have an operating system. Social engineers are using this. The Tenth Rule of Radicals says if you push a negative hard enough, it will push through and become a positive. That, my friends, is where we are. What do we do with this mess? What do we do with the sexual chaos in our culture today? Well, in your preaching, in your counseling, in your leading, I want to encourage you to get people to Jesus as quickly as you can. The only person who can take that mess and do anything with it is him. He has the answers. He has the healing. And my heart for you is that you won't try to complicate it. Introduce people to Jesus. Because he will lead with grace and land with truth, which is exactly what they need. Let me wrap up by reading a parable for us today. I just pray you'll tune in and really hear the message of this. The author says this, There was once a great and noble king whose land was terrorized by a crafty dragon. The scaly beast delighted in ravaging villages with his fiery breath. Helpless victims ran from their burning homes only to be snatched into the dragon's jaws or talons. Those devoured instantly were considered more fortunate than those carried back to the dragon's lair to be devoured at his leisure. The king led his sons and knights in many valiant battles against the dragon, but one day, riding alone in the forest, one of the king's sons heard his name purred low and soft. In the shadows of the trees lay the dragon, and the creature's heavy-lidded eyes focused on the prince, and his reptilian mouth stretched into a friendly smile. Don't be alarmed, said the dragon. As gray wisps of smoke rose from his nostrils. I am not what your father thinks. Well, what are you then? Asked the prince, slowly drawing his sword as he pulled in the reins to keep his fearful horse from bolting. Oh, I am pleasure, said the dragon. Come now, I have no harmful intentions. I seek a friend, someone to share flights with me. Have you ever dreamed of flying? Ever longed to soar in the clouds? Visions of soaring high above the hills drew the prince hesitantly from his horse, and the dragon laid out his great wing to serve as a ramp to his ridged back. Between the spiny projections, the prince found a secure seat. Then the creature snapped his powerful wings twice and launched them into the sky, and man, the prince's apprehension melted into awe and exhilaration. From then on, he met the dragon often, but secretly. For how could he tell his father, brothers, or the knights that he had befriended the enemy? The prince felt separate from them all. Their concerns were no longer his concerns. Even when he wasn't with the dragon, he spent less time with those he loved and more time alone. Eventually, the skin on the prince's legs became callous from gripping the ridged back of the dragon, and his hands grew rough and hardened. After many nights of riding, he discovered scales growing on the backs of his hands. With dread, he realized what would happen if he were to continue. He resolved to return no more to the dragon, but after a few nights of resisting, he again sought out the dragon, having been tortured with desire. And so it transpired many times over. No matter what his determination, the princess eventually found himself pulled back, as if by the cords of an invisible web. Silently, patiently, the dragon always waited, and one cold, moonless night, their excursion became a foray against a sleeping village. Torching the thatched roofs with fiery blasts from his nostrils, the dragon roared with delight when the terrified victims fled from their burning homes. Swooping in, the serpents belched again, and flames engulfed a cluster of screaming villagers. 
Prince closed his eyes tightly in an attempt to shut out the carnage. And in the pre-dawn hours, when the prince crept back from his flights with the dragon, the road outside his father's castle usually remained empty, but not tonight. Terrified refugees streamed into the protective walls of the castle. The prince attempted to slip through the crowd to close himself in his chambers. But some of the survivors stared and pointed toward him. He was there, one woman cried out. I saw him on the back of the dragon. Others nodded their heads in angry agreement. Horrified, the prince saw that his father, the king, was in the courtyard holding a bleeding child in his arms. The king's face mirrored the agony of his people as his eyes found the prince's. The prince began to weep, brokenhearted as he realized how much pain he had caused his father. He never wanted to see the dragon again. The palace guards apprehended him as if he were a common thief, and they brought him to the great hall where his father sat solemnly on the throne. People on every side cried out against the pr prince, Banish him! He heard one of his own brothers cry out, Burn him alive! Other voices shouted. The king rose from his throne. The crowd fell silent in expectation that a sentence of death would be handed down. The prince, who could not bear to look into his father's face, stared at the stones on the ground. Take off your gloves and your tunic, the king commanded. The prince obeyed, slowly dreading that his guilt would be uncovered before the kingdom. He had hoped for a quick death without further humiliation. Sounds of revulsion rippled through the crowd at the sight of the prince's thick, scaled skin and the ridge growing along his spine. The king walked toward his son, and the prince steeled himself, fully expecting a backhanded blow, even though he had never been struck by his father. Instead, the father embraced him and wept as he held him tightly. In shock and disbelief, the prince buried his face against his father's shoulder. Do you wish to be freed from the dragon, my son? The prince answered in despair, I've wished it many times. There is no hope for me. Not alone, said the king. You cannot win against the serpent alone. Father, after what I have done, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I am half beast, sobbed the prince. But his father replied, My blood runs in your veins. My nobility has always been stamped deep within your soul. With his face buried in his father's embrace, the prince heard the king instruct the crowd. The dragon is crafty. Some fall victim to his cunning and some to his violence. There will be mercy for all who wish to be freed. Who else among you has ridden the dragon? The prince lifted his head to see someone emerge from the crowd. To his amazement, he recognized his older brother, one who was known throughout the kingdom for his onslaught against the dragon in battle and for his many good deeds. Many others came, some weeping, others hanging their head in shame. But the king, the king embraced them all. Because love, perfect balance, grace and truth, changes everything for everyone, everyone, including me. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that in Jesus, we have an answer to everything that is hurting our culture and our society right now. Father, I pray that in our teaching, in our leading, in our counseling, in our preaching, we would make a beeline to the cross. And we would help people get to him. I thank you, Father, that he looked this woman in the eyes and said, I don't condemn you. And at the same time told her, go and sin no more. Father, I am amazed by Jesus. Grateful for Jesus. And I just want to stop in the middle of the day. Thank you for my brothers and sisters who are here. And Father, I pray on this beautiful fall day that we would take just a moment to not worry about what's next, 
but to stand in your presence and to say thank you for not backhanding us, but for embracing us. Father, we're so grateful. Thank you for the ministry you've entrusted to us. Help us not to be stingy with grace or truth, but to share it willingly with everyone we meet. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.